Welcome back to The Break Room, episode four. I'm your host, Alexis Murray, and thank you for listening in. Healthcare costs are front and center, and each major player in healthcare is proposing their plan for Americans on the best way to provide quality yet affordable care. So what can doctors do? The only thing that never changes in healthcare is change itself, and we're here to keep you in the know. Among the many debates in healthcare, one consensus is that healthcare costs are rising and American families are struggling to keep up with them. In this episode, we're going to address how providers can participate in the nationwide conversation on making healthcare affordable. Today, we're joined by Dr. Winston Leaw, a family practice physician and researcher practicing in Fairfax, Virginia, who will talk with us about social determinants of health as we look at the impact of one's finances on their health. But before we get to the episode, we want to let you know that the Privia team is very excited to share that we have launched a new version of PriviaMedicalGroup.com. This site is not only more user-friendly, but highlights our work in different regions and spotlights the physicians we partner with in our mission to changing healthcare to what it ought to be. Please check out our new look at PriviaMedicalGroup.com. Now let's get to the show. According to a 2014 report from the New York Times, residents of one of the richest U.S. counties, Fairfax County, Virginia, have a life expectancy of 82 years. This same report showed that residents in one of the poorest U.S. counties, McDowell County, West Virginia, have a life expectancy of only 64 years. That is an 18-year difference in life expectancy of counties less than six hours apart. For comparison, according to 2015 World Health Organization data, the life expectancy in the U.S. is 79. McDowell County's life expectancy of 64 years compares to Syria, Ethiopia, and Sudan. These differences in life expectancy are shocking, but if it's linked to socioeconomics, what can doctors really do about this? Today, we'll talk with Dr. Winston Leaw, a family medicine physician in Fairfax, Virginia, about his recent work on examining how physicians can use more information about social determinants of health, including their financial position, to better care for their patients. In addition to practicing as a physician, Dr. Leaw works at the Robert Graham Center at Virginia Commonwealth University. He earned his undergraduate degree at Rice University Master's of Public Health at Harvard University, and Doctorate at Baylor College of Medicine. Thank you for joining us today to talk with us about how health and wealth correlate. Um, Socioeconomic status is among the numerous social determinants of health. Can you define social determinants of health and why you particularly thought it was really important to study them? Sure. Happy to. Um, I like the definition that was proposed by the World Health Organization, which defines social determinants of health as the conditions in which people are born, grow, live, work, and age. And there's a lot of emerging research about the importance of social determinants on health. For a long time, we thought that a lot of health just involved your genes and biology. And then people started to recognize the importance of things like access to care, whether or not people could pay for their medication, their education level, the neighborhoods in which they lived. And researchers actually found that those determinants have a greater impact on health than your genes and biology, for instance. And so I thought it was helpful, and, and a lot of other researchers and practitioners thought that at the end of the day, you know, all of us want our patients to be healthy, and if we are 
ignoring the social characteristics of patients or their family and community context, then um, we'll be missing a huge part of what it means to be healthy. So today we're focusing specifically on the cost of healthcare and the need to lower costs um, for American families. Healthcare costs contribute to the many money issues that Americans face. And wealth inequality is frankly a, a really huge issue in our country, but that's obviously not just limited to the healthcare industry. So there's obviously tons of arguments for the fact that doctors can't really solve the issues around inequality. Uh, but you argue that while they can't solve them, they should can certainly consider them. So why do doctors, why should doctors want to better understand a person's wealth as a social determinant of their health? Yeah, there's a paradox here, which is that the social determinants that have the greatest impact on health, things like education and financial resources, are the ones that are uh, least amenable to um, to change. You know, especially from a clinical perspective, it's very difficult to um, change somebody's wealth or level of education, whereas it's slightly easier to help them find a place to exercise or a place to get healthy foods. Um, but the the former ones, the the social determinants that that have huge impacts on health, things like education and and finance, financial considerations and wealth, definitely do have a huge impact on, on health. There are ways for clinicians, even if they can't change somebody's financial situation, a lot of times the financial situation plays into how a clinician can approach a patient. So for instance, in our practice at Fairfax Clinic Practice, which is one of the previous practices, we uh, we gave clinicians information about where a patient was coming from and also their individual social needs. And we then we asked clinicians what they did with the information during the encounter. And as a result of having the information, um, about 50% uh, said that they just got, you know, felt like they knew their patients better as a result of having the information. And about a third said that they changed. They did something different. So they changed their medication, changed the patient's medication. They gave different type of education, or they referred to the Privia care management team. So I can imagine that, you know, having information about a individual's uh, wealth could influence how I would approach the encounter. So it, it may it may affect the types of interventions that I would propose or the the treatment plan. I may individualize the treatment plan more. Um, and I think it would just open the door to a conversation about whether or not the treatment plan that I think is most appropriate um, is actually realistic for this patient. And obviously, we, we don't want to um, restrict the treatment plan based off of wealth, but I think that there are things that we can do during the encounter to make sure that the treatment plan really aligns with um, the patient's values and then his or her resources. Um, so that's one, one thing you could do is just adjust your, tailor your treatment plan to that individual's resources. Um, another thing that you could do is, you know, one of the things that we have been, that we found is that patients who uh, are in a more impoverished area have worse clinical outcomes. So if we're looking at ways of reducing health disparities and improving quality, um, that may be a, another way to target individuals who 
may be at risk for worse clinical outcomes or worse quality. And that was kind of leading into my next question. Based on what you've learned from all this research, how do how does one's financial status correlate with their health? Is that something that you've seen huge disparities between somebody who's living in a lower um, income area versus somebody versus some of the patients that you may see in Fairfax County um, that tend to have sort of a higher um, level of wealth in that particular area in the in the DC region? As you, I think as you guys mentioned in the introduction, there's a, a large amount of variation. Uh, among our counties uh, throughout the U.S. So there's just uh, wide differences in life expectancy and mortality. Uh, in the introduction, I think you guys mentioned the difference between McDowell County in West Virginia and Fairfax County in Virginia, and that's the life expectancy difference is 18 years. Um, I mean, if you think about, I mean, how much you could do in 18 years, that's pretty astounding. And if you think about all of the interventions that we have available to us in medicine and how we're really happy with even just a, a very small change in mortality. It, it just makes you think that addressing these social characteristics likely could produce even uh, greater improvements in health. Um, of course, a lot of the research on social determinants and, and, and how, and specifically wealth and how that correlates to health, a lot of that is done at an ecological perspective. So it's done at the state level. They're comparing different states. They're comparing different counties. Um, and it's unclear how that relates to your individual patients. So um, we're just now getting more data at the individual level because we can get it from electronic health records. Um, and we can see what happens when you change or address somebody's social determinants of health. Um, and for a long time, we just didn't have that granular type of information, but we have that now. In theory, we, we think that um, these differences in, in social determinants uh, affect health at the individual level, but that really is something that um, we're still studying. You know, we, now we have the, uh, the tools and the methods to, to really study and answer. And you recently presented um, your work on social determinants of health with your colleague, Dr. Alex Christ, to the Privia team based on um, physicians that you worked with in Fairfax, Virginia, and I know that's where you currently practice. Um, can you talk with, uh, talk with us about the structure of your research? You know, what kind of physicians were you including? How many patients did this include? Sort of what, how did you structure this so you could get a, a good picture of how physicians can use this information? Uh, yeah, we had two main questions. Well, the first question was whether people who lived in resource-poor communities had worse quality measures and health outcomes. And then the second question was how do clinicians incorporate social determinants of health information at the point of care? So I'll take the first part of that, um, the first research question, which is the relationship between where somebody lives and their health outcomes. Um, so what we did was we uh, geocoded all of the patient address. So what that means is we assigned a latitude and longitude to an address, and then we attached that address to its commensurate census tract, which is a geographic unit consisting of about 3,000 to 5,000 people. And then we added on additional information about that census tract, um, things like 
poverty, education, uh, and there's something called the Social Deprivation Index, which is a composite measure of deprivation within a community. Um, and then we linked those community measures to uh, the patient's quality measures in the electronic health record, uh, things like um, whether they were obese, uh, if they had uncontrolled diabetes or a hemoglobin A1C greater than 9. And then we looked at a variety of preventive measures, things like colorectal cancer screening, aspirin for cardiovascular disease, um, cervical cancer screening, and whether or not they had uh, adequate vaccination. And so we, we identified those patients who were living in the worst uh, communities or the, the areas that we consider most deprived. And we did that by uh, identifying those in the, the, the worst quartiles for poverty, education, and composite social deprivation. And we call those places cold spots. So that's sort of the inverse of hot spots. Um, so whereas hot spots are the locations of individual patients where uh, they're using a lot of resources, the cold spots are the communities that uh, lack resources. So we looked at the relationship between resource communities and quality measures and health outcomes, and we did find that those who are living in resource poor communities had worse quality measures and health outcomes. Uh, the second part of our study was looking at how clinicians used social determinants of health information. Um, this information has not been routinely captured. Um, the National Academy of Medicine recently put out a report declaring several social and behavioral measures that they think should be integrated into electronic health records. And in fact, Privia has incorporated a lot of those uh, measures into their social history. And we had uh, individual patients complete an individual social determinants of health assessment. And then we also told um, clinicians when their patients were coming to see them and they, had, they were living in resource-poor communities. And then after the encounter, we had clinicians fill out diaries about what they did during the encounter and whether or not the information changed their um, relationship with the patient and then also the specific activities during the encounter. And what we found was that half of the clinicians said that they felt like they knew the patients better after having the information. And about a third said that they changed the encounter. Um, and so from here, we're trying to learn more about how to incorporate these data into uh, the clinical encounters, how to use things like the Privia care management team, the population health team, to better address unmet um, social needs. Unfortunately, this is an area that is still being studied, and, and we really do need a lot of other clinicians to be engaged in the process in order to figure out um, how best to incorporate the information. And how many clinicians did you work with? 17 clinicians. Uh, we also had learning collaboratives, uh, so these were all uh, family physicians, uh, we had uh, a nurse practitioner and a physician assistant, and then we also had learning collaboratives, which can compose of a broader swath of the, the um, clinical team, so it included nurses, 
administrators, care managers, and patients, and that was about 30 people. And we broke that up into smaller groups um, that were geogra geographically distributed, and then we had four different meetings where we talked as a group about how the information was and was not helpful. Um, the Fairfax County Practice Electronic Health Record system has about 180,000 patients, so that was the number of patients that we geocoded. And I know money is a really personal subject. I would assume most people would not be open to just sharing that, saying you know how much you know how much they make per year if they feel like they are in dire straits. So, what kind of questions were you were you and other physicians asking from your patients, from these patients that filled out that survey, to get them to open up about their economic status and potentially share the fact that they may need assistance in managing their health and managing the financial burden that comes along with that? Yeah, there's lots of different ways to get at this question. You know, for instance, you could ask somebody how much they make. You could use different categories so that it wasn't a specific number. Um, but you can imagine that somebody who makes what a lot of people think is a reasonable salary may have difficulty paying for their bills if they have a lot of other debts. Um, so that number can be a little deceiving. Uh, the question that we asked uh, in the individual social uh, needs assessment had more to do with whether or not they had trouble paying for their bills and whether or not they had financial difficulties that affected um, their ability to get medications, to go to uh, office visits, and to seek treatment. And, and we did have people who declined to answer these questions, um, although it was a fairly small percentage of the, the individuals that we approached. So I think people are willing to share that information, especially when it doesn't reflect their actual salary, but just is an indicator that they need assistance. But once again, we're still trying to figure out which, what's, what's the most effective question and how, does that, how do people's responses to that question link to clinical outcomes? Were the doctors, and I know you talked about how these physicians, half of them said it changed the way that they, they at least thought about their patient or it helped them to have a bigger perspective on, or a wider perspective, excuse me, on their patient's sort of uh, personal situation. Were the doctors happy to have this information? Were there some doctors who kind of pushed back on even needing to know this? And I guess from your own perspective as a physician, how did this information help you? What, did you do anything differently? Did this make you interact with patients differently than you did before? Yeah, I think anecdotally uh, and, and through the, the surveys that, um, that we had submitted, uh, we did see that you know, it was, it was helpful information to have. That being said, there are, there are several caveats. One is that the um, physicians who knew their patients for a long period of time said that the information was not as helpful. The other caveat that I'll throw out there is that this was a snapshot. So we asked them at that one encounter, but you can imagine if you're seeing a patient over a long period of time that the information may not be relevant today because they're coming in for you know, a sprained ankle or something that doesn't necessarily require you to have that information. But maybe a year from now, there's a clinical situation where that information is critical to um, the treatment plan. That's the other caveat that I would uh, keep in mind. Um, I, you know, I, I think for the, for the majority of patients, the information probably is not 
completely relevant to the encounter and not um, needed at that at that time. But um, but there are going to be a lot of patients. Um, and once again, we're trying to quantify the number where. You know, it is critical. It is it is an important piece of information, and I think help. You know, trying to figure out how to identify those patients is going to be a key question for uh, primary care, uh, healthcare, and researchers. Is you know, which are the patients where this is really important information? And my suspicion is that it probably is highly relevant for uh, people with very complex medical histories, so people with multimorbidity, they have a lot of different chronic diseases, high utilizers, people who are coming back to the clinic over and over again or going to the emergency room or to the hospital. Those are certainly people where, you know, this information is, is critical and without it, we really can't adequately treat the patient. And I know you mentioned that for some of those primary care physicians who had been seeing patients, you know, for many years, this information obviously wasn't as sort of groundbreaking or new for them. So do you think that understanding more about the patient's personal life, or at least having access to this information, asking more about this information, is more helpful for other doctors or for specialists, excuse me, than primary care physicians? Do you think that some doctors benefit from this information and other physicians may not need this at all? Yeah, I think, I'm not sure I can comment on whether it's more or less beneficial, but I do think it is beneficial, and I think it is helpful for specialists to think about this context, because, you know, the, the scenario that I painted where you have a complex patient that has a lot of social needs and none of us are able to really get at the root causes. I think that's a scenario that, that resonates with a lot of specialists as well. And I think it really comes down to longitudinality. You know, I have a lot of specialist colleagues who have very long, continuous relationships with patients. And then there are other types of um, relationships or services that are, are, are more one-off and um, or, or they have less of a uh, longitudinal relationship. Um, so I think in the situation where they have less of a longitudinal relationship, having the information I think is very helpful because once again, the treatment plan can be tailored to the individual's resources and preferences and values. Um, and another aspect to consider is that the specialists often have access to more expensive um, diagnostic and therapeutic tests, and so it is really important for them to understand where their patients are coming from. So we're going to reduce costs. You know, it can't just be the primary care team who is um, taking into account social needs. It really has to be everyone in the medical neighborhood that is um, aware of and helping to address these social needs. Once again, it can't just be one part of the clinical team. So let's say that these physicians are at the point where they feel that, you know, we are we are dedicated to um, value-based care. We understand that these social determinants of health have a huge impact on our patients, and we want to really treat them in a holistic way, both understanding their personal needs and understanding their health needs. 
what is kind of the first step for those doctors? You know, I know there's obviously a lot more research that needs to be done on, the, on this topic, but what is the first step for those doctors that see patients that are really low income and they have, you know, multiple chronic diseases and they just want to find, to, to provide them with the resources to sort of move forward? Yeah, and I, I think one of the take-home points here is that the physician does not have to do all this by himself or herself. It really should involve a team effort, should involve partnerships with the... We have a Privia population health and care management team. Other offices may not have that resource. But there are a lot of resources out there, things like the YMCA, SNAP, WIC, um, a lot of county uh, service, county um, health departments have uh, services as well um, that can uh, provide you access with social work assistance. Um, and there's obviously a lot of organizations uh, in the community that are dedicated to linking patients with um, community resources. So there's a website called Aunt Bertha which allows you to map and identify community resources in your uh, area for financial, food, housing, transportation assistance. Um, I also work at the American Academy of Family Physicians, and we have a tool called the Community Health Resource Navigator, which allows you to map locations of account services for mental health and addiction, parks, and markets. But I, I, did, I feel like there are um, a lot of existing resources, and I'll tell you a story. I had a patient who was having worsening depression, and she was already on antidepressants, and um, she was already on she was already in therapy, and she still had worsening depression. And um, I, after talking with her, I found out that. Uh, she had an impending bankruptcy because she was hospitalized a couple of years ago and, and couldn't, still couldn't pay off those bills. And so she called the county. The county had a, um, a community coordinate, coordinating body, and they linked her to a, a debt consolidation service that they had vetted and found to be uh, reputable. And then that act had had really lowered her payments and allowed her to um, stave off uh, bankruptcy. And, and really, her, her mood had improved, um, and, and a lot of her uh, symptoms had resolved. And so there's a lot of patients who are actually already doing these things, that they're already going through these um, pathways. And part of the, the, the challenge is identifying the patients who are already creating these linkages between primary care and social service organizations, and then figuring out the path that they took, and then creating more sustainable pathways so that other people can uh, follow their lead. And my last question for you today is, I know we talked a lot about how someone's economic status and their health, how they, how they correlate and why it's important to understand that. But just on a broader scale for social determinants of health, for those practices that are looking to really understand this information and start to capture this information when they are speaking with patients or maybe including this on their uh, initial patient survey when they're collecting information, what would you say are the first things they should look for? Is that education? Is that 
um, where they live or like what are the things that they need to really look at to better understand their patient situation? I think we're still trying to figure that out, like which, uh, at, you know, which social determinant to address if you could only address one. I'm not 100% sure there is that we know which one is the most important. And my suspicion is that it probably varies depending on, pa on the patient. Um, I think for practices, there are two things that you could do. One is um, incorporate the National Academy of Medicine questions into your um, intake and into your electronic health record. At Privia, we have those questions and patients can actually complete them at home and then integrate it into the portal and then you can review them during a physical. Um, the other is a, there are several assessment tools that are available online. There's a tool called PREPARE, which is spelled P-R-A-P-A-R-E, which is created by the National Association of community health centers, and it's an individual social needs tool, and it's free, it's online, you can download it right now, and it has a lot of questions that are related to the social determinants that we've been talking about on this podcast, and that's another tool that you can use and um, distribute right now. <clears throat> there, it's more difficult to do the step that we had, that I had referenced earlier, which is geocoding and then looking at variation within the census tracts um, that represent the service area that is being um, serviced by the clinic. Uh, that is not impossible to do, it's just more resource and time intensive. Um, but one thing you could do is go to uh, several mapping tools. There's a mapping tool called the UDS Mapper and then there's another one called the 500 Cities Mapper. And both of those tools have information about um, zip codes and tracks throughout the U.S. And you can use that tool to learn about the communities around your clinic. Um, and I think just being aware of the distribution of poverty or the distribution of low-income patients in your neighborhood is, is really the first step in better understanding the patients that are coming to your clinic. Thank you for listening in today, and we want to thank Dr. Liar for joining us to talk about his research. Please look out for our next episode featuring Rick Forrester, Vice President of Population Health for Privia, who's going to continue this conversation as we actively look at what we can do to lower costs for patients. To hear the next episode, past and future episodes, go to go.priviahealth.com slash the break room. You can also find The Break Room on iTunes, so please check us out there, subscribe, rate this episode, and leave a review. If you have any questions or just want to learn more about how we're putting physicians in the driver's seat, please contact the Privia team at 888-996-0232.